life. How you doing? That's, give, me, give me a you if you're feeling good. Oh, people are feeling good. I'm excited to be with you here tonight. Most of you would know who I am, but yeah, for those of you who don't, I'm Cam. And like Jordo said, I've been involved here in Centerpoint for a while. So a bit, bit about me, a bit of my backstory. I'm married to my beautiful wife, Andrea, and uh, we'll have been married 10 years in December, which is, I can't believe someone would put up with me for 10 years. It's pretty amazing. And uh, we've got three little boys, Levi, Josiah, and Zeke. So it's safe to say we have a very busy and vibrant household, but I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. And I love calling Centerpoint my home. Yeah, like we've been involved here since before it was called Centerpoint. So that's getting on a few years now. And yeah, like George said, we've uh, been involved in youth group. We've been involved in leading the kids ministry. And um, I'm just excited about what God's been doing here at Centerpoint. And uh, really excited about what He's been doing here at Nightlife. So I'm really honoured to be here in front of you tonight, having this opportunity to speak with you. And uh, like George said earlier, I really want to honour Ben and Tamara. And what a great job and a faithful job they've been doing here uh, in the youth ministry, the young adult ministry, nightlife, all of it. So I just want to honour them. Let's just give them a round of applause tonight. Now, I like to get excited when I'm speaking, so I give you permission to get a bit rowdy tonight, okay? Like, if, if you want to be letting it loose, I'm cool with that. Let's get excited. So Ben's invited me along to join in on the Fresh Prince fun, the 90s nostalgia. Who enjoyed dressing up in the 90s for the first night? Yeah. Well, I have to confess, I am a 90s kid. So I actually remember when the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was still on television. Not a rerun, actually still on television. So I'm having some kind of existential crisis that the 90s could have been long enough ago that we're dressing up as the 90s. Like, it was only yesterday in my mind. I can't be that old. Can I? Maybe the truth hurts, hey. Maybe it does. So in this series so far, the press fresh prince, the press prince, I get my mood twixed. We've looked at the fact that the new you is the true you. That God is the author of life and he made you. And if he has a plan for you, then that's what he made you for. And Ben came and gave us this fantastic illustration of the wonky block life that hadn't quite worked out as planned. And our series is based from the scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. And we looked at the fact that yes, our life hasn't quite kind of gone out the way we planned or maybe we didn't have a plan at all, but God didn't want to just renovate our life that was a bit wonky. He wanted a demolition. And we looked at the fact that in order for there to be a reconstruction, there has to be a deconstruction. And that when we do rebuild our lives, 
on this new blueprint that God has for us, some parts of us will go back on there. But then there's also some parts which we need to judge as unfit for his fresh blueprints. And we've been looking at the different parts that make up the new us. And the part that Ben has asked me to look at tonight is self. How does self fit into the new blueprints? What do the new blueprints of self look like? And I've decided to title my message tonight, Get Shook. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We worship you. Dear Lord, we are in awe of your holiness. We are in awe of your glory. And God, as we come before you this evening, we pray that you would shake us. We thank you that you love us so much that you have new fingerprints for us, that you have new blueprints for us. And we thank you that you love us so much that you do not want to leave us the way that we are. So God, we open ourselves to you tonight. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts and that you would be working on us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be changing us, challenging us. We give it all to you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So self, what is self? Well, as I've discovered researching for tonight, self is an extremely broad topic. There are many different ways to define and look at self. A psychologist can devote his entire life to understanding self and how we relate to ourselves. And then if you get onto the philosophical view of self, I've listened to a few good podcasts on a philosophical debate of self. And I tell you what, that is one deep rabbit hole that goes completely over my head. So what I'm going to try and do tonight is to dumb it all down to a level that I understand. And if I understand it, you can understand it. Can I get an amen? So to oversimplify it, self is made up of three main things. And the first thing is self, your individuality. What makes you unique? And number two, your nature and your character. And Ben looked at these first two things last week when he looked at identity and he brought such a great message that told us that God has a new identity for us. And that in order to take hold of this new identity, we first had to let go of our old identity. And the third part of self is personal interest. The value or the priority that I place on myself. And that's where we want to sit tonight. That's what I want to focus on tonight. So how do I fit my self-importance into the blueprints and plans that God has for me? So I'm going to put my hand up tonight, and I'm going to admit that I can be selfish and that I can be self-centered. So I'm preaching to myself here tonight. Now, I didn't think that I was selfish and self-centered, and then I had kids, and all of a sudden, life wasn't about me anymore. All of a sudden, my agenda and my schedule wasn't the priority. And all of a sudden, these little tiny humans 
are dictating my priorities. And it was a shock to me. I'm like, wow, I really was selfish with my time. I can't just be playing computer games all day anymore. I can't just be working on my car whenever I feel like it. It was a shock. And um, if we're honest with ourselves, we could probably admit that we're all a bit selfish and self-centered, right? And you're like, yeah, wait, did he just call me selfish? Did he just call me self-centered? Well, let's look at it this way. One of the things that I enjoy that I get a kick out of is scaring people. And I learned very early in my married life that scaring my wife isn't worth it. No matter how many kicks I get out of it, don't scare your wife. It's not worth it. I've had to exercise self-control for these 10 years that I've been married to not scare my wife. But when I was younger, I didn't have so much self-control. So my poor older sister, she copped it. So any opportunity that I had to uh, lie in wait behind a doorpost or in a hallway somewhere, wait for it to come and boom, ah! it was great. I got heaps of kicks out of it. And uh, so this, this one time, when we were old enough to have our own cars and we were still living at home, our parents' cars got parked in the, in the garage close to the house, right? But we had to park our cars around the back in the machinery shed. And there was a bit of a distance there. You had to cross across the backyard. And uh, my sister's first car was an old TE Gemini. I loved that car. It had a bit of an exhaust on it. It had a bit of a note. It was, it was cool. I liked it. And what this exhaust meant was that you could hear it coming. So in the still of night, you could hear this Gemini coming around. So one evening... I'm there doing whatever I was doing, I don't know, playing computer games, and I heard the car. It was late at night, and I'm like, ooh, this is good. So um, I could hear it with enough time to sneak outside and uh, cross the backyard, get hiding behind the shed, waiting for my poor sister to get home. Now, to set the picture and the scenario for you, I'm from a little town called Chinchilla. And we lived on the outskirts of Chinchilla on five acres. So there's no street lights. So um, it was dark. So on a moonless night, when you hold your hand out in front of you, you can barely see your hand at the end of your arm. I don't know where else your hand would be other than the end of your arm. But the point is, it's really dark. So like when you live in the city enough, you actually forget what dark really looks like. It's pitch black. This was one of those nights. And uh, so... Probably not a really good environment for someone who's slightly afraid of the dark, like my sister. <laughs> so uh, I heard her come in. She's cruising down the driveway, rah, pulls into the shed, and then I'm crouching like, this is so good. And I hear the car door slam, and she didn't even shut the roller door. I can hear her footsteps shuffling, waited for the right moment, and then rah, ah, she let out the most blood-curdling scream you've ever heard. All the lights in the house came on. Dad came out the front. What's going on? I'm lying on the ground just laughing and laughing. My poor sister, she, I probably took years off her life that night. I don't know. Now, if you laughed at that, you're selfish. Why? Because what are we doing? We're getting our entertainment at somebody else's expense. We're placing our priorities and our needs above somebody else's. Now, that's a pretty silly example, but you get the point, right? 
we all have a tendency to be a bit self-centered. And the reality is, we live in a very individualistic, self-centered society. You don't have to look any further than social media, where it's never been easier for us to broadcast ourselves, for us to give our opinion on any topic. Like, I didn't know how many pandemic experts I had in my friends list. Who knew? But social media convinces us that our opinion matters. And uh, we constantly broadcast ourselves through well-curated posts and pictures that are designed to get other people to celebrate us. I know, because I, I do it. We, uh, we rage on the roads at other drivers who dare to occupy the same road as us. Stupid traffic. You know, after all, it's my journey that matters, not theirs. Yeah, just just me. Okay, yeah, no, fair enough. I get that. We are the selfie generation. It's no longer a photo of a beautiful landscape. It's a photo of us in a beautiful landscape. It's all about me and the fact that I was there. We walk glued to screen, completely oblivious of those in our path. We ride on trains and buses, ears in, ignoring our fellow commuters. We work hard to accumulate stuff. We've all got way more stuff than we actually need. And there's people that go without. It's all about me, me, me. And a life focused on self is not pretty. I actually know a guy who is completely and utterly self-absorbed. My 19-month-old son, Zeke. For a toddler, life is all about them and getting what they need right now. And if they don't get what they need right now, massive tantrum, dummy spit, throw your toys out of the cot. It's great fun. The scary thing is, is sometimes we see adults behaving like that, yeah? So when you look at it like that, it's pretty easy to see that a selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed life is something that we should be growing out of, something that we should be moving away from, something that we shouldn't be embracing. But unfortunately, there are parts of our culture that are embracing self-centeredness. One movement, one trend that, that I've noticed, and I don't know if you've noticed it too, is the self-love movement. And, and what this movement promotes are all good things. It's all about taking care of yourself. So it's making sure that you're eating enough, that you're drinking enough, getting enough exercise, um, self-empowerment, all good things, right? What Ben's asked us to do is truly assess each block that we're building our lives with. So I want to just take a slightly deeper look at that. And when you head to the self-love website, it reads, self-love is the act of putting your own happiness and well-being first. It's about loving yourself first before you can love others, which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You know, get yourself sorted out and then love others. I just want to ask you a question. What would happen 
if everyone in the world followed that advice, I can tell you what would happen. No one would love others. No one would do good. No one would do charity. Why? Because when would you know if you've loved yourself enough to start? So does self-love fit with God's blueprints? What does God's word say? In Philippians 2, 3 and 4, it says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. That doesn't sound like putting myself first, does it? You know, maybe that block doesn't fit. Now, I want to put a caveat in there. If you're here tonight and, and you're facing mental health battles, maybe it's depression or anxiety, I just want to let you know, I am not advocating that you shouldn't take care of yourself because you should. But I can tell you that a life focused on self is not the answer. That is not the place to start. You know, I know this firsthand. I've got skin in the game when it comes to depression and anxiety. I've faced the black cloud. I match on with anxiety every day. And, and I can tell you the smaller and more self-focused my life became, the worse my anxiety and my depression got. A life focused on self is not the place to start. So what is the solution? How and why can we become less absorbed with our own individual needs? Well, the answer to that is an encounter with God. So I want to take a look at a man in the Bible who had an encounter with God. And that man is the prophet Isaiah. And the story of his encounter is, with God is found in Isaiah 6. So I want to read that for us tonight. Now, I hope that I can do this story justice as I read it. I really want you to get the magnitude of what's happening here. So as I read it, as you read it, I want you to really take the time to imagine what's happening here. Place yourself in what's happening. All right. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is Isaiah speaking. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Just imagine that for a moment and what that would have looked like. Above him was seraphim, each of them with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. 
your sin atoned for. Then he, I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. So Isaiah had an encounter with God and a pretty amazing one at that. So what does it mean for us to have an encounter with God? What does it mean for us to encounter the reality of God? It's to get shook. It's to have first a God quake, and then second, a self-quake, and then that will lead third to a world quake. So a God quake, a self-quake, and then a world quake. So first, the, the God quake. In the beginning of the passage, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. What a picture. And he sees the Lord high and lifted up. Where? In the temple down here on earth. And what does he see? He sees the glory of God. And what happens when he sees that image? Everything gets rearranged. All of the furniture gets shook around. So Isaiah meets God and everything around him changes. When the reality of God comes down into your life, everything changes around you. For Isaiah, his view of himself, his view of history, everything changed. And that is what we want to talk about tonight. When God shows up, there's a God quake. Because God's power is more glorious than anything. In Exodus 19, when God descended onto Mount Sinai, it says the whole mountain trembled violently. At the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, God's glory is described as a violent wind. God's glory is powerful. Now, tonight, I want us to see the difference between having God as a concept and having God as a reality. The difference between just believing in God and having an experience of God's glory. You see, when Isaiah walked into the temple and saw the Lord high and lifted up, he didn't say, oh, so there really is a God because Isaiah already believed in God. But up until this moment, God was just a concept and then God became a reality. So what's the difference between having God as a concept and having God as a reality? 
It's a matter of glory. See, God as a concept doesn't carry very much weight. When you bring God as a concept into your life, you shape it. You pick the color, you pick the shape, the size, you pick where it goes. You fit the God block into your existing life. It fits around your existing patterns. It doesn't move you. It doesn't shake you. If you believe in God and it hasn't changed you very much, it's just a concept. I have a friend who works who thinks he believes in God, but that's not going to change him because it's just a concept to him. God as a concept is lighter than you. But God as a reality, that carries weight. God as a reality is heavier than you. And when, God, when the real God comes into your life, when you actually get into the presence of the real God, things give way in your life to his glory. Instead of God fitting into your agenda, God becomes your agenda. He radically changes your priorities. Now, my agenda without God is to have a very safe, tidy little life, to watch my back, to not take risks, to be careful, and to always look out for number one. But God says bravery. God says self-sacrifice. God says sacrifice your individual needs because I'm more real than your individual needs. Up until this point, God was a concept in Isaiah's life. And then God showed up and rearranged everything. Has that happened to you? So how do you know if you've actually gone from having God as a concept to God as a reality? The answer is our second point, the self-shake. So here's how you can know you've had a self-shake. For Isaiah, he had an experience of radical beauty, an experience of radical humility, and an experience of radical purity. So first, radical beauty. He heard the seraphim calling out, holy, holy, holy. Not holy, not holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. So what is holiness? Well, on one hand, holiness is superlativeness. And what does superlativeness mean? Don't worry, I didn't know either. But superlative means of the highest kind or quality surpassing all else, supreme. So to say God is superlative, you could say God's wisdom is infinitely beyond and above anybody else's wisdom. To, to say God is superlative, you could say God's love is infinitely above and beyond anybody else's love. God is superlative. So on the one hand, it means superlative, and on the other hand, it means brilliance, and beauty. And that's what you get with these seraphim. They were singing to each other, fascinated with his holiness. They love his holiness. They can't get enough of his holiness. They are worshiping him in the beauty of his holiness for no other reason than his holiness. Radical beauty. Now, I want to show you what the opposite of that looks like. 
Now imagine you come into a large sum of money, a large family inheritance, and you can't believe your luck because the moment you come into this large sum of money, all of a sudden, the guy or girl of your dreams has become really interested in you. Who knew? And they're so interested in you that they want to marry you. So you get married. And sometime after the marriage, your spouse discovers that they can't get their hands on this family money and they leave you. How do you feel? Do you feel used? Do you feel like a means to an end? Do you feel like you weren't loved for who you truly were? Do you know, it's possible for us to relate to God like that? Do you worship him for the beauty of his holiness? Or do you worship him for his blessings bank account? Isaiah had an experience of radical beauty. Have you had an experience of God's radical beauty? Next, he had an experience of radical humility. Woe is me. Now, when a prophet says woe, woe is a curse. So Isaiah is cursing himself. He's saying, I don't deserve to live. I'm ruined. I'm undone. What is going on here? Why is Isaiah cursing himself? He's experienced the greatness of God. Let me show you what's going on. Now, even in the presence of human greatness, we find it distressing because it crushes our self-image. Now, imagine, if you will, you're like me, and you come from a small country town. And then imagine, not like me, you're the best singer in that town. And so because you're the best singer, you decide, I'm going to try out for X Factor. So you take yourself off to the big city for your X Factor audition. And as you're there waiting for your audition, you hear the other people doing their auditions. And, and what you hear are voices. And you hear voices that are inaccessibly better than you are. And you're crushed. Why? Because of the denial of your mediocrity. You fall apart. Woe is me. And this is just in the presence of human greatness. You think you're pretty. You think you're fast. You think you're smart. And then you find out, I'm average. I'm not good. Now, what happened to Isaiah? The commentary in my Bible tells me that Isaiah was someone of human greatness. He was of the royal family and a prophet. He's called the Shakespeare of Hebrew literature and is described as having the golden tongue. So he was able to communicate well. And in an oral culture, that was power. Now notice in the passage it says, in the year Uzziah died. So that gives it historical context. Now King Uzziah had been in seclusion for years. He'd had leprosy and everything was falling apart. The culture was falling apart. Society was falling apart. Things were in bad shape. Now, don't you think a guy like Isaiah, probably the most brilliant young mind of his generation, would think, man, 
I can't wait because I know what's wrong with this society. I know what's wrong with this culture and why it's falling apart. And when I get into power, man, I'm going to set things straight. Now, whenever there's things wrong in society, and there's always things wrong in society, it doesn't matter what the issue is, whether it's, I don't know, climate change, Black Lives Matter, pandemic response, whatever the issue is, it's easy for us to think it's the other guy that's the problem. It's the person over there that's, that's the problem. It's the people on the other side that's the issue. But Isaiah gets into the presence of God and realizes he's the problem. All of my people are unclean and I'm just one of them. Even my lips, remember, he's the Hebrew Shakespeare. Even the best part of me is wrong. Now, multiple times in the Bible where human beings move from God as a concept to God as a reality, they actually start to hate themselves. Job says at the end of the book, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone. He curses himself. And Peter says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I can't even stand to be in your presence. I'm so wrong. If even in the presence of human greatness, our self-image comes crashing down, how much more will our self-image come crashing down in the presence and reality of Almighty God? So if even in human greatness, we're crushed, how much more when we get into the reality of the holy, perfect, glorious Lord will our self-esteem and self-importance be crushed? But God doesn't leave us there. You see, Isaiah was crashed for a few seconds into the lowest self-esteem you would ever want. Then the next thing, as soon as he confesses his sin, the moment he talks about the reality of his sin, God explodes into his life. Because God's, sorry, one second after Isaiah realized that he didn't deserve to live, that he is more wicked and more flawed than he'd ever dared believed, he is now more valued he is more affirmed and more wanted than he had ever dared hope. Can I get an amen? Because God's here saying, I've got a little business going. I'm saving the world and I need a new partner and I want you. And then he says, by the way, the job I've got for you to do is actually going to be horrible because all your life you're going to be unsuccessful you're going to preach and preach and preach and nobody's going to want to listen to you. You're going to be totally frustrated and you're going to be completely ineffective. And what does Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. What happened to Isaiah? What is going on there? His self-image had been deconstructed and reconstructed on the spot. He got shook. At the same moment, he realized he was more wicked than he ever dared believed and he's more loved and affirmed than he ever dared hoped through the grace of God. 
He's bold and humble at the same time. Now, how is that possible? Radical purity. Did you know that centuries later, the same thing that happened in Isaiah happened again? There was an earthquake because God came down and the temple was shaken. The temple was shaken so much that the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew 27 verse 45 says this, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. Now what was happening? Before Jesus died on the cross in the garden, he said, my soul is sorrowful unto death. What is he saying? He's saying, woe is me. I am undone. I'm ruined. I feel like I'm coming apart. Jesus was shaken by the judgment of God. Jesus Christ is the judge of the world. But the first time he came, he didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. Amen? He was shaken to the depths so that we could be unshakable so that we could get the new self-image that comes from the self-quake of having the glory of God come down into your life. Isaiah had a self-quake of radical beauty, radical humility, and radical purity. Can I get the keys up? So after the God quake and after the self-quake comes the world quake. After God comes into your life and creates a self-quake, after you get shook, you're sent out. You're sent out to be a part of a movement of God that will eventually shake the whole earth because God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And to become a cooperative agent in this mission, there's three things that come as a result of having a self-quake that make us useful. That is availability, dependency, and ex <laughs> availability, dependability, and expectancy. Instead of using God and fitting Him into your life, you let Him use you. So, firstly, availability. Here am I. God is more real than my needs. I want to give you an illustration. Now, if the distance between the earth and the sun, a hundred and, what is it? There it is, better get it right. 149 and a half million kilometers was reduced down to the thickness of a sheet of paper. Just imagine that distance, if you will. There's a few planets in there. Was reduced down to the thickness of a sheet of paper. Then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 20 meters high. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of paper 500 
kilometers high. That's how big the galaxy is. And yet, the galaxy is but a speck in the whole universe. And my Bible says that Jesus Christ holds the universe together with the word of His power, or His pinky, as it were. Now, let me ask you this. Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? I want you just to think about the implications of that for your life. Now, I want God to be available to me. But as He stops being a concept and becomes a reality, I realise that I need to be available to Him. We need to be available. Availability. Now, dependability. God says to Isaiah, I have a job for you. And Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. Now, did you notice? God hadn't given him the job description yet. That didn't matter to Isaiah because he was dependable. He was willing. But God did give him the job description and it was not a good one. But at the end of giving it, did Isaiah take the job? Yes, because Isaiah was dependable. His needs were not as important as God. So he doesn't work his ministry around his needs and whether he gets fulfillment. Why don't we all do that? Why not take the job before the job description? Why not get taken out of yourself and what's fulfilling to you? Because the glory of God is in your life. And then finally, if I can get the rest of the band up, expectancy. There's a seed in the stump. At the end of the passage, it says, there's a seed in the stump. What God says to Isaiah is, Isaiah, for the very rest of your whole life, it's going to be just terrible. Spiritually, economically, politically, it's going to be one disaster after another. And you're never going to see it get any better. Your nation is going to be like a grove of trees cut down. And you're like, well, this all sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? Do I really want that for my life? Well, don't worry, because there's a seed in this stump. God says, I'm going to bring apart, bring about a new heavens and a new earth. And you are going to be a part of my new heaven and my new earth. You see, if God is your reality, then you always live, no matter how it looks around you, in the hope and the knowledge that eventually everything that's sad is going to become untrue. Everything terrible, no matter how terrible it is in your life, everything terrible is going to become untrue. Because Jesus Christ wins in the end. God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. So with that availability, with that dependability, with that expectancy, say to God, here am I. Here's myself. I don't want to use you. 
please use me. Please shake me. If everyone could stand with me this evening. Now, I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know how you're feeling. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what God's been saying to you. But maybe you're here tonight and you're like, yeah, I need to get shook. Maybe you're here tonight and you're like, I have actually just had God as a concept and I really need the reality and the power of God to come into my life. Or maybe you're here tonight and you've realised that maybe I haven't been worshipping God for His holiness, for who He really is, but maybe instead what I can get from Him. Or maybe you've fallen into the trap of just inviting Jesus in to be your assistant. Or maybe you've been wanting God to be available to you rather than God, you being available to God. Wherever you're at tonight, I want to use this time, I want you to use this opportunity to open yourself to God and say, God, shake me. Lord, I put aside myself. I put aside my priorities because I realise that you are more real than my priorities. Or maybe you're here tonight and you're new to church, you've been checking it out and maybe you've never made that decision. Maybe you've never made that decision to follow God. I wanna give you that opportunity tonight. I'm not gonna do anything crazy like ask you to come out the front. I just wanna give you the opportunity to raise your hand and say, yeah. All of this stuff that you've been saying is really making sense to me. I've been trying to live my life and I've realized that this life that I have that's focused on self, it's not really working. Maybe this is your opportunity to say, yeah, God, I wanna sit in the back seat and I I wanna put you in the front seat, in the driver's seat of my life. If that's you tonight, while every eye is closed and every head is bowed, I just want you to raise your hand. Say, yeah, Cam, I want to follow Jesus. I want to put God in the driver's seat of my life. If that's you, raise your hand now. Yeah, I see that hand. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I see that hand. Awesome. All right, you can you can put your hands down. Everybody here tonight, I want you to pray a prayer with me. And if you put your hand up just now, I want you to pray this prayer and I want you to mean it. Let's pray after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I love you. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I'm wrong. Dear Heavenly Father, I admit that I need you. Please forgive me. Please come into my life. Dear Lord, I commit myself to following you. Dear Lord, I commit myself to being a part of your world-changing plan. I pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Let's give God a round of applause tonight. Now, if you if you put your hand up and you prayed that prayer, either come and see me or see Jordan or one of the other leaders, but make sure you let somebody know that you prayed that prayer tonight. And for everybody else here tonight, I just want to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your holiness. We are in wonder of your glory. I want to thank you, God, that you care about us. I want to thank you that you have fresh fingerprints for us. I want to thank you that you have fresh blueprints for our lives. And dear God, we pray tonight that you would shake us, that you would shake us with your reality and with your glory. And that as you shake us, you would mold us and make us ready for the earth shake that you want, Lord. We give it all to you. We give you the glory. In your name. Amen.